Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis-Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Jo Francis Penn, and this is episode two of the Books and Travel podcast. Today, I'm talking about how Ireland inspires the writing of Orna Ross. And Orna has a gorgeous Irish accent, and you'll definitely enjoy our conversation. We're also good friends, so we have a bit of a laugh as well as some deeper meaningful and also inevitably talk about Guinness. And uh, Orna also gives us uh, some Irish words to, so that we can learn together. So although Orna is Irish, she does live in London, and we discuss the aspect of writing uh, Uh, which I'm really interested in, which is writing about the place you're from versus the place you call home. And Orna talks about her own writing being coloured by childhood. And it's very different when you travel as an adult. I definitely don't have a deep uh, sort of sense of home in the same way that Orna does. I have much more of a sort of peripatetic life as such. I've travelled so much. Uh, I guess I am from the West Country in England, which is where I now live. But it is a fascinating topic. So we talk about writing from uh, the sort of local perspective and the outsider perspective. To me, If you're from somewhere, you have a deep knowledge, you have a deep memory of a place and feelings that people can't see when they come in from the outside. But the other way around means that if you're coming in as an outsider, you often see things that the locals take for granted. And the contrast with your own life can also bring a richness. So we talk about those things. Uh, The theme of the interview is intimate war. And Orna weaves the background of the Irish Civil War into her own books. Also, the internal struggles within a family. And of course, this is pertinent to the political environment right now, uh, certainly as I record this in 2019. As Ireland is within the EU and Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. Um, and of course, <laughs> these are difficult. It's been uh, many years since there has been a hard border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. So uh, we, we're coming into quite a difficult phase again. So we talk about these type of struggles. Now, also, uh, Ireland is a very short hop from where I live in the southwest of England. But I have only been once, which is, again, one of those classic situations where people often visit places on the other side of the world. (laughs) I mean, I spent 11 years in New Zealand and Australia, and yet I have only been to Dublin for a weekend. (laughs) And it's literally a short hop away um, on a a plane, or you can actually drive from where I live to a ferry and then cross over to to Ireland. So I did visit Dublin uh, back in the 90s, late 90s, and I didn't have much time. I was working there. I had, I think I literally had an afternoon. And so typically for me, I visited the Book of Kells at Trinity College, uh, possibly the world's most famous medieval manuscript dated from the ninth century. It's an illustrated copy of the four Gospels. Now, it's not surprising that I would choose that as my 
sort of one and only place I visited in Dublin. Uh, and Orna talks about some of the other places that are beautiful and historic to visit, as well as what would be considered, I guess, these days more the real island. We also talk about death and mythology and W.B. Yeats and mysticism and the lighter side of things too. So I really hope you find this interview fascinating. Orna Ross is an Irish novelist, a poet, non-fiction writer and creative coach. And today we're talking about how Ireland features in her writing. Welcome, Orna. Hi, Joanna. It's great to have you on the show. So first up, where are you in the world right now and what's outside your window? Right now, I'm in London. And what's outside my window is a typical London street. Um, I'm in a part of London, though, that has um, a real connection to Ireland, though I didn't know it when I bought the house here. It is actually where a lot of people started off their London life. And of course, there are more Irish people in London than there are in Dublin. So um, that was interesting. And I've got very interested in the history of the Irish community here in London as well. I think that's that's one of the things about Ireland is it's everywhere. Ireland isn't just that little island in the middle of the Atlantic or and off Western Europe, it's actually a diaspora of people that are just all over the world. Um, I love that. That's my Ireland. Yeah, which is fantastic. And we're going to come back to the idea of home in a bit. But um, obviously, you're Irish. So I just want to point out your accent to everyone. <laughs> And I did want to ask about this because a lot of people write about places that they are, they are not from. So what, what are the differences, do you think, in writing about a country that you're from versus writing as an outsider? I've only ever written about other countries, other places um, in nonfiction. So as a journalist for a while before I had my children, I travelled a lot and I wrote a lot about places that I had visited and I think it's a completely different thing for me so it, it was all about the surfaces as you would expect and it's like meet when you meet a person for the first time and it's also all about the positives generally speaking and um, you notice the things that are different from where you're from yourself and you notice the things that you love and it's very sensual so it's about tastes and sounds and smells and all that kind of stuff when I write about Ireland, it begins in a completely different place. It begins on the inside and it's a very much an internal sort of um, relationship and it's coloured by childhood. So always when I'm writing about Ireland, I kind of feel small looking up and looking out. Whereas when I write about other places, I feel kind of big and I'm looking into a funnel that kind of narrows. Um, so that will be the difference for me. Mm, no, that, that makes sense. But it's interesting because, of course, you live in London. Uh, you are part of the diaspora as such. You left Ireland. So your Irish trilogy, um, beginning with After the Rising, uh, set across four generations in Ireland. Um, so why did you want to write about a place that you left? What is it that draws you back to writing about Ireland? Well, the... Trilogy actually writes about being Irish in Ireland, but it also writes about being Irish in San Francisco and being Irish in London briefly, more San Francisco than London. I, wa I wanted to write really about intimate war, so family and um, 
there it's the book is based around the Irish Civil War of 1923, which was a kind of a, an internal strife that happened after a peace treaty was signed with with Britain, which is very common in countries that have a, a freedom revolution afterwards the freedom fighters all fall out and that's what happened in Ireland but I grew up and it was very personal because my great uncle was killed in that and it was only an 18 month war it was very you know it was a scuffle but it was awful and people really lost their sense of what they were fighting for and it became very very bitter and Families turned against, you know, husbands turned against wives, brothers and sisters, uh, friends and so on. And my great uncle was shot by a former friend. Um, but everybody was deeply ashamed of it. And so I grew up in an atmosphere where nobody talked about this aspect of our, our history. So that's where I kind of started was what's the secret under this silence? And then that led out to all kinds of intimate wars. I said it led on to looking at the AIDS crisis in the 80s in San Francisco, which to my mind operates from a similar sort of place. So, yeah, it it. It, um, I've forgotten what the question was. <laughs> it was really, yeah, what, what keeps drawing you back? I love this idea of intimate war because, um, you know, I think that a lot, the word struggle, I think, would be uh, associated a lot with what people assume Ireland is. So that would be my next question. What are some of the assumptions about Ireland um, that kind of drive you crazy or things that people, uh, misconceptions that people have? Yeah, I mean, I think people either have a very romanticised view of Ireland or a very old-fashioned view of Ireland, and sometimes those two things are the same. So, you know, there is this assumption that it's it's all very rural and it's a very, um, you know, idyllic sort of mystical land of uh, fairies and uh, <laughs> all that Celtic mythology that sprung up really at the end of the 19th century and most of which is bogus. But there are a lot of people who still buy into that. And in certain moods and modes, I can buy into it myself. It's very attractive. Um, but when it's taken to extremes, which it so often is, particularly in, in, in the US, it has to be said, there are, you know, there can be a, a highly romanticized view and a frozen in time kind of view. So, I mean, I have literally had American cousins come to the house and, and be disappointed that there was a washing machine and a dishwasher and um, you know, that, kind of, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, Ireland now is one of the youngest countries in Europe. It's one of the most liberal countries in Europe. It is one of the few countries in the world to have a liberalized gay marriage by popular vote. You know, these kinds of things are not associated with Ireland in, in most people's minds. People still think of it as um, a poor country, a backward country and, and so on. And that is no longer strictly true. Of course, it is true that Ireland's prosperity is bought on everybody leaving. Uh, you know, huge numbers of people still emigrate from Ireland all the time and it wouldn't be prosperous without that. But so much comes back from that as well. It's not That's not the terrible um, fate it used to be, uh, you know, since we have the internet and cheap travel and so on. I think a lot of people live out of Ireland out of choice and it's a good choice for a lot of people. And I would include myself in that. 
Mm. So, I mean, you talk there about modern Ireland, but of course people do go to Ireland looking for that that historical side. They go wander around the beautiful buildings of Dublin, some of the ruined, um, I guess, churches and, and things like that. So what are some of the beautiful places that inspire many people to write um, about Ireland? Well, the, the west of Ireland is the place that is is most mythologized, and I think that draws people. It definitely has that um, kind of mystical, spiritual sense. It's very live and very easy to get there. There are lots of um, old monasteries and uh, sites of pilgrimage from the time when Ireland was called the Isle of Saints and Scholars, and essentially kept writing alive and kept culture alive in Western Europe in what's known as the Dark Ages, between sort of 800 to 1200, it was Irish monks writing down stuff that, that kept a lot of culture alive. And that happened in monasteries like Glendalough. And, you know, a lot of people really feel that very keenly. And if I need a dose of that kind of thing, I go for that. I, I absolutely love it. But the, the east side of Ireland, where I'm from, I'm going to plug now because it is <laughs> undervisited and underappreciated. And it really is also stunningly beautiful. On the, on the south coast, you've got that Atlantic wildness that you get on the west coast of Ireland. So you've got that. But you've also got, it, it was the first part of Ireland to be colonised and it was um, managed by the Normans very well. And that their way of managing farming and everything lived on in the corner of Wexford that I'm from right into the 19th century with its own language. Um, old English was still, there are still old English words and pronunciations there to this day. And there's sort of, it's a microcosm of everything because it was very cut off. Um, a mountain range and a river cut it off twice, first around the county and then down in the, the bottom corner where I grew up. And I really did grow up in a village where I think things hadn't changed for something like it felt like 600 years apart from <laughs> apart from the odd car and the odd tractor and you could literally see how life was lived 600 years prior people were still fishing in the same way they were still farming in the same way our village was tiny there were 10 houses in it um one pub one church you know and that, and that was it kind of thing and then that has changed beyond all recognition now so it, I feel I have one foot in that time. And I think that's, uh, I would recommend everybody to visit Wexford in Ireland because it really is a unique and, and hugely interesting place. Wow. Okay. You've to I'm totally convinced now. <laughs> so I know the listeners will be too. So what are some of the cultural aspects around Ireland. Um, you know, we, we've mentioned, uh, I guess, Catholicism is one uh, obvious thing. And I want to ask you about the pub as well. You said a church and a pub. <laughs> so what are those aspects of, of Ireland that, um, you know, that, that you think of? Oh, well, you know, the sacred and the profane right there in your village, you know, and, and sometimes uh, the one you thought was sacred was actually the one that was profane. So it was all there. I think that's the thing for a writer. 
um, in that small village in those first years of my life. I have enough to write, uh, you know, more books than I will write in my lifetime. I don't want to write about anywhere else. Everything was there and all, all of human life was caught there uh, at every level. So pub culture is huge in Ireland, obviously, um, both good and bad around that. Um, I grew up again in a, in a culture where storytelling and singing was absolutely essential. Everybody had to have their party piece. You would be, you know, sitting just chatting in, in a gathering of people and suddenly one of the oldies would just start singing a song out of nowhere, you know, and the next thing there would be a sing song. And if you can't sing, which I can't, you had to recite something or tell a story. And so that's great training for a writer, I think. And everybody around me, the older people in my family and the men in the pub, they were all storytellers. And it's one of the differences between Irish culture and, say, English culture, which is hugely interesting and obviously a huge, rich and fabulous culture in and of itself. But one of the differences in Ireland is that everybody takes responsibility for everybody else's enjoyment. You you don't, you know, everybody turns up to have what we call the crack and everybody's responsible for upholding that. So everybody joins in, everybody takes uh, having fun seriously and you're kind of expected to turn up and do your bit. So it was kind of, it's very it was very unusual for me when I first moved to England to realise that that's a cultural difference that I didn't even notice that was a thing, you know. Um, And now I really notice it when I go back home and I love it. I absolutely love that you can step back into that. But in England at first, uh, you know, I I will be doing that and then realising nobody else is doing it and you feel like you're on stage almost, so you stop doing it. (laughs) (laughs) I I can imagine you sitting in a pub in London starting to sing. I mean, that it just, to me, that just feels very uncomfortable. So just if if people are listening and they want to go to Ireland and they go to a pub, um, you're not expected to like sing if you're a foreigner, right? It's just... You can just, you can join in if you want to. No, you have to join in. <laughs> but we won't expect you to perform unless you're that way inclined, but you absolutely have to join in. There's none of this. You would at a minimum have to tap your foot and tap your hands. Oh, that's all right. I can, I, I, I can tap my foot with the best of them. <laughs> so, so that's good. So talking about uh, performance, so you're also a poet and I came to one of your events where you launched, um, uh, the Secret Rose, Her Secret Rose, um, which was a book that also honoured W.B. Yeats. And uh, you read, I think you read or you showed a video of the poem, The Stolen Child, which evokes the fairy folk. And I know you talked about that and some of the mythology, but um, what what are some of the things, and you, you talk about the occult in those books. And so what are some of the unusual myths or stories that are fascinating or why do you still write about Yeats in particular? Well, Yeats is one of my masters, you know, and I he to me is is one of the greats of all time, poetry wise. And he had these two completely different phases in his life, and that that event that you came to was around the early part of his life. And he he almost, you know, single handedly for a while popularized what was then an academic interest in folklore and folk tales. What he did was turn it into this amazingly readable poetry for the Victorians at the time. And Victorians loved the fairies and um, all the Celtic mythology. 
went down really, really well. So I, again, there is that sense of escapism, you know, the, the come away or human child to the waters and the wild, the fairy hand in hand for the world's more full of weeping that we can understand. You know, that is something that we all have that longing to escape and to go to a purer place and to get away from the world that's always uh, full of weeping about something and our own lives can can be difficult. And he captured that sense of escapism uh, through those myths and so on in a way that some of it has dated terribly. It's um, it's really cheesy and corny now, but some of it is timeless and will will never fade. The best of that work is still, to my mind, amazing. But there's the whole thing of, you know, not not everybody knows that, for example, Halloween, as we celebrate, as we celebrate it now, arises completely out of the Celtic myth of Samhain, um, you know, which is the Celts were very, the Celts as we understand, the little bit we understand about what really went on and so much of it, there's so much mythology there and so little actually in, in historical sources, but Certainly they were very close to the seasons and they were not um, prissy about death. And uh, so there is some, again, for a writer, there's a a sort of a truth in a lot of these old myths that's very like all fairy tales. You know, they capture dark parts of the psyche that we don't express or uh, in everyday living that we repress and suppress. And I think they're really important. So things like the banshee, you know, who who wails when somebody dies in the house, um, the, the Halloween thing, which is autumn, um, the similar to the Mexico um, feast of the dead, you know, the all souls, the idea that the the barrier between this world and the world of the people who have died, or the people who are, you know. Um, from the past or on the undead or whatever way you want to talk about where that barrier kind of is thinnest they say at that time of the year and that gives rise to a whole string of story and culture Dracula comes out of that and many other Irish stories so um, I think it's a really really rich stream of culture that has only still barely been tapped yeah, and it's, it reminds me, um, uh, the, one of the other kind of things that always gets portrayed in films featuring Ireland is some kind of wake. <laughs> so, I mean, I was just thinking of kind of the stereotypes of things about Ireland that they put in movies and the, the wake with the kind of the, the body lying there and the people drinking and also the, the wailing, as you say. And uh, I seem to remember that I promised if you died first, I would come and wail at your, uh, at your wake, <laughs> which is not very English. <laughs> no, it's not. And I have people who will check that you have done that. And if you don't do that at Samhain, I will be back to haunt you. <laughs> <laughs> but is that is that wake um, scene, you know, you, you can probably, everyone can picture it in their minds, you know, from the movies. Is, is that a stereotype or, or like, is there truth to that? Oh, God, no, that happens. Yeah, totally. My my father's cousin died two or three years ago and uh, she was an old lady, but she, she was waked. And so people are, but not everybody is. You can choose to be. Um, and the wake is pretty much as you see it in, in movies. And, you know, the body does lie there in the middle and everybody drinks and the song may start. And, you know, it's that whole thing. The Irish have a very different 
attitude to death to to the English again, say, or to other cultures. So I, I used to say the Irish do death well. And then an, uh, an English person said to me, well, they do death well if you're Irish, but they don't do death well if you're English. So <laughs> I guess it's whatever culture you grow up in, that's what you like. But I always feel we're very comfortable with death. You know, it, it is very much part of life. In the wake, you do carry on. You talk about the person, but you have a good time. A funeral is as good a day out as a wedding in Ireland. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to become Irish at some point so I get a decent funeral. (laughs) Decent send off. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay, so I do want to ask you about um, pronunciation. And I know I have fallen foul of this many times with Irish names and even with your own name. Um, So Orna Ross is a pseudonym. So I wonder if you tell us about that and maybe also just give us a couple of, um, you know, phrases that people can say or you know you know that will help people in in Ireland not feel so silly with pronouncing pronouncing things wrong (laughs) I feel silly (laughs) (laughs) well the thing is I think because Irish people speak English and English is spoken widely in Ireland there's a sort of a perception that Irish is not quite its own language but of course it's a completely different language and so you can't teach somebody how to pronounce Irish names unless they learn Irish and how Irish is pronounced because it just isn't phonetic in English. It's a completely different language with a completely different root and so on. But the, the few words that kind of make a difference when you when you travel, uh, you know, being able to say hello, hello in Ar- Irish is diagwith and the actual translation of that is God be with you. And that's one of the, the things about the Irish language is it's absolutely saturated with God and blessings. And it's a very, you know, the very spiritual sort of language. So, yeah, diagwith is how you say hello. And gurev mahagut is how you say thank you. Um, but probably the easiest one for everybody to remember is um, our equivalent of cheers, which is slauncha, which is you know, means you, your good health, which it does in, in lots of countries. It's, I suppose it's like selling. So, yeah, if you say slauncha and you raise your glass or your cup of tea, um, everybody will love you. <laughs> oh, excellent. Well, that's what we needed in the pub when we are not singing in the corner. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> that's fantastic. OK, so talking about um, eating and drinking are really important parts of any culture. And again, kind of the stereotype I think of Ireland is a pint of Guinness. Um, so what are some of the um, or uh, any recommended uh, eating or drinking um, things for Ireland that you would recommend? A uh, pint of Guinness. <laughs> Definitely. You have to have Guinness and it's an acquired taste. So, you know, don't you may not love the first one, but you'll definitely love number three. And Guinness goes really well with uh, what we call brown bread, which is kind of soda bread. Um, that's, that's very commonly served in Ireland. Really delicious. Can't get it outside of Ireland. Don't know why some enterprising Irish person hasn't set that up and, and sold proper brown bread. Um, and brown bread and Guinness go really well with oysters or different kinds of seafood. Um, and again, that's very commonly served or brown bread, Guinness and uh, seafood chowder is is really delicious. Ireland's like everywhere else now in that it is kind of taking in lots of different 
kinds of cuisine. A traditional Irish um, main course was kind of meat and two veg, very often pig meat, a bacon or a ham or something like that. But um, they, those kinds of dishes are now being fused with other cultures in really interesting ways. So there's lots of, you get really good. The thing that's very noticeable about food in Ireland is that the ingredients are fantastic, really fresh and um, tiny islands. So the seafood is excellent if, if people like seafood. Um, yeah, so I would recommend that rather than, so meat, the meat is very good. Now you're, I'm talking here as vegetarian, so I'm being very good in, in terms of recommending all of that. Vegetarians and vegans do not as yet have a great time in Ireland, it has to be said. they um, There are a few places, but really only a handful. Um, so yeah, but brown bread and Guinness and you don't really need anything else it's a meal in itself (laughs) that's fantastic um okay so uh, just a broader question about travel so why do you travel and what does travel bring to your writing I guess going away from Ireland yeah travel is I think something that um, writers are just automatically attracted to and it's that whole thing of the cleansing of of the normal perception it shakes you out of your your everyday mind you know your routine your way of doing things you wake up when you travel don't you all your senses come alive new foods new sights new sounds new smells new tastes and obviously I love that um, I don't travel per se, you know, what I think of as travel, which I, I to my mind is includes adventure and somewhere very different from where you're from. I don't travel in that way as much as I did um, when I was younger. Um, I tend to now take breaks where in places that I know and love, uh, I'll have the things that I know and love. Again, being vegetarian and vegan affects travel where you go and there are certain places I always loved um, Italy but it's cheese on cheese on cheese in Italy you know so it tends to be shorter visits there now than I would have before but yeah I think travel is just so important for writers it's really important to get outside our own our own mindset it's and see how other cultures do things see see that things you know that we take for granted as important or a given are actually not neither important nor given they're they're just cultural and as what sort of I think it, it has all sorts of effects that are positive I can't think of a single reason why a writer wouldn't travel. Mm, fantastic so talking about books um, are there any other books you'd recommend to give people uh, a taste of Ireland? I think you do you know you do have to read Yeats, I think, to read, to understand Ireland and the early poetry, I think, is a great accompaniment to an Irish visit. Not the later stuff where it gets all political and, 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 and different, you know, much more sophisticated kind of poetry in, in his later life. But that early stuff will kind of sweep you away into that that kind of feeling of Ireland without being, you know, Irishy. And so I think that's definitely on the poetry front, I would I would recommend Yeats. I would really recommend reading some of the new Irish women writers who are winning a lot of prizes uh, for their writing, like Ema McBride and Sally Rooney, the most recent um 
I forget which prize she won, but these are great books. They draw on a tradition in Ireland of stream of consciousness writing, which was made most uh, famous by uh, Joyce in Ulysses, but is a, a consistent kind of string of writing in Ireland that is very interesting, very um, unusual, and taps into the, an Irish voice that is unique, I think, and gives you a sense of Ireland in, in a way that, that um, other books don't. And then Roddy Doyle would be my other um, big recommendation for urban Ireland, because we do forget that Ireland does have an urban side. Uh, it's not all green fields and blue seas um, or Gracies. Um, so Roddy Doyle has written about every aspect of urban Ireland from domestic violence to um and deprivation and made it all extremely funny and entertaining as well as extremely moving and touching. Um, he, he is a really great writer. And then I will give a shout out to two um, other Wexford writers who are both fantastic writers, Colm Tobin, who's, who is um, known, well, was known for a long time as a gay writer, but broke out of that completely about 10 years ago and has written the books that uh, films like Brooklyn and so on were, were based on. He's a fantastic writer. And John Banville, who does, uh, writes as Benjamin Black. Black. Yes, mm. uh, his thriller is uh, set in 1950s Dublin, are really atmospheric, but he's also written um, literary fiction, which is well worth reading, including if you are coming to Wexford, The Sea, The Sea, which was a Booker winner and is set in Rosslare, where my mum lives. No, oh, there we go. And also just tell us about your books set in Ireland. Yeah, so all of my books, uh, all of my fiction has uh, some foot in Ireland, uh, usually if one foot in Ireland and one foot out of. So uh, there's a standalone book, Blue Mercy, which is uh, set in Ireland and California. There's the Irish trilogy, which you mentioned, third book um, of that, not out yet, but after the rising and before the fall, which is set around the Irish Civil War. And then the third one is um, brings in New, the New York Irish into that story and takes it into the 21st century. And uh, then there is the Yeats trilogy, which is about a very unusual um, triangular relationship between Yeats and his muse, Maud Gone, and her daughter, Isolde, who was also a muse and to whom he also proposed marriage. So um, it was a, they had a crazy summer in uh, 1917, 1918. And um, yeah, those books capture that, but also because they're told through the voice of an Irish domestic servant, capture that whole thing of intimate war again. It's set around the uh, First World War and the Irish Revolution. So yeah, Ireland, Ireland, Ireland. I don't think I'll ever get away from writing about Ireland, but I also like to bring other places in and have that kind of dual perspective. And the Irish diaspora allows for that because, uh, you know, so many people leave and have this love-hate relationship with Ireland that I very often explore. Mm, fantastic. So where can people find you and your books online? Ornaross.com. And if you like fiction, it's ornaross.com forward slash novels. Brilliant. Well, like thanks po- so much. Oh, sorry. sorry. If you like poetry, it's ornaross.com forward slash poetry. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. So thank you so much for your time, Orna. That was great. Great, Joe. Thank you. Really enjoyed talking to you about Ireland. 
Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.